Hello and welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, our monthly podcast where we take two soundtracks, compare them across five rounds and declare an overall winner. Once again, we are in a hot metal box in West London. How are you feeling, Ella? I feel very hot, as though like I'm, you know, in the fires of Mordor. Oh, topical, <laughs> topical. Uh, I guess that is the segue we need to identify what we're talking about today. You've already seen it on the title of the podcast. The first films for Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, which are Fellowship of the Ring and then the Philosopher's Stone. Yes. Right? Or if you're in America... The Sorcerer's Stone. Sorcerer's Stone? Why? In the rest of the world, we tend to laugh about the fact that in America, both the book and the movie are called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone instead of the uh, Philosopher's Stone, with the joke generally being, oh, because Americans are scared of philosophy and they thought it would be a philosophy book. But as I understand it, it's more that the publishers there were like, we want a more inherently magical title because otherwise there was no sort of mention of wizards or magic in the title, and that's what they went for. But anyway, so in America, it's called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So, a quick little chat about the contenders. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring, first movie of the Lord of the Rings franchise, directed by Peter Jackson. They were released in 2001, 02, and 03. The score is by Howard Shaw, a composer perhaps better known for his scores for horror movies and thrillers. He also did The Fly, Seven, and Science of the Lambs, which, as I understand it, is a genre very dear to Peter Jackson's heart, so that's probably why he appealed to Peter Jackson. And I will note that while I'm talking, I'm going to be borrowing very heavily from a book which I actually have next to me here called The Music of the Lord of the Rings by Doug Adams, which is, as it says on the cover, a comprehensive account of Howard Shaw's scores. And it's a book I actually really love and also a book that I was reading sort of very comprehensively back when I was... um, studying film music, so it's been quite influential on me personally. So I, I love these scores and I love this particular book. And if anyone out there, I mean, you listen to this podcast, so I'd hope that you're interested in music of Lord of the Rings. If you want extra detail, I mean, that is the place to go. It is spectacular piece of work. Fair enough. And then Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone um, was released in the same year, in 2001, um, just before Christmas back in November. And then the score was composed by John Williams and directed by Chris Columbus. Um, so they've both worked together previously um, on Home Alone, which yes, is which another. Yes, we talked about, yeah. Um, funny enough, I just realised this is actually the third John Williams film we were actually talking about. It is. It is hard to avoid him. We've tried to avoid him, but it, it, it does tend to come up. I think we need to dig harder dig deeper for other composers next time. But what did you think about the films when they first came out then? I really liked both of them in their own way. They're quite different. Obviously, it was very interesting because they basically came out like within a month or two of each other. Did you watch them in the cinema? I did. I definitely watched The Fellowship of the Ring in the cinema on release day. And I remember it being quite sort of funny because the release of the first one, at least where I was, there was like maybe three people in the cinema. When I, when I went for the, the very first one. But by the time, like a year later, and then particularly for The Return of the King, the last one, like the first day of release was packed every single time. But yeah, it, it had that sort of slightly low-key intro, whereas Harry Potter was the exact opposite because obviously the books had been so popular. 
in the, the few years before the films came out that they were just massive releases when they happened. What about you? Um, well, Harry Potter, I think Lord of the Rings, I did watch in the cinema and I watched Return of the King in the cinema. I did enjoy it. I thought it was very, it was, it's funny. I watched it now and I realized how long it is. I think back then I didn't realize the length of it. So, because mm-hmm. I guess I was so immersed into it and I really enjoyed it. But after so many years has gone by, I don't know whether it's aged very well for me. Interesting. And so when I was watching it for this podcast, I felt like, wow, this is like almost three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very quite conscious of it. Um, maybe also the fact that The Fellowship of the Ring has been on broad, like on normal TV constantly. Right. Like, I don't know if you... I don't no, know I didn't even notice that, to be honest. Oh, my God. It literally is, a, it is on on every weekend. Wow. It's kind of, what's the word, saturated. Yeah. Whereas Harry Potter, funny if I didn't actually watch until many, many years after it got released, maybe wow. at least five or six years, because I never got into Harry Potter, not, neither the books or okay. the films and stuff. So I actually watched Harry Potter, the, Phil- the, Philosopher's, the Philosopher's Stone, um, just bef- I think during Christmas time, because that's when it was showing it. And I felt really, that sort of, I enjoyed the vibe that it gave. It was a very Christmassy vibe, you know. It was okay. Ooh, I mean, controversial. I, what with Harry Potter? Yeah. What the There's film? a lot of people out there who love it as a film. Yeah, but that's because they they love the book mm. and they love the world that was created. I I'm completely detached from it, so I okay. kind of see it more for the acting and seeing it seeing it more for the storyline, which you don't feel okay. it holds up. Well, the kids aren't exactly great actors, are they? For one thing. Okay. Um, the I think the film has moments of magic that I re- I did enjoy, but uh, overall. Um, yeah, it's it's okay. Yeah. Overall. Okay. Well. Fair enough. That's about as far as we can talk about these films before we unleash our spoiler alert. And before we go any further, when we talk about something on the show, we talk about the full thing. I mean, we have to. So there's going to be some pretty serious spoilers in this podcast, and you have been warned. So, let's talk about our rounds. As per usual, we've had to be a little bit creative in order to compare these uh, mammoth films. In round one, we're going to be talking about prologue themes. Round two, we're going to be talking about the ordinary world slash innocence. Round three, action. Round four, evil. And round five, as per usual, legacy. So, we'll be right back with round one, prologue themes. So one of the interesting things about both of these movies is they start with this little, like, prologue scene that, that gets to have music, which is great because it gives us something nice and easy to uh, compare. Yes? You're looking at me suspiciously. Yes to Lord of the Rings, but prologue for Harry Potter, slightly no, because when I think of prologues, I think, like, it's more of like a like looking back to what happened beforehand and kind of a montage of how the things began, sure. you know. So I think with Harry Potter, if it was going to be a prologue. I think that should it should have started with some sort of a bang of like the death of Harry Potter's parents mm. and then moving into um, Dumbledore leaving the child at his uncle's home. Do you see mm. what I mean? I just sure. felt, so for me like that. It didn't seem like a prologue. It just felt like, oh, it's just an intro to the film. Okay, so that little scene of, yeah, Dumbledore walking around with the lights and stuff just felt like a little... Okay. It was just an intro to the the film, you know, just Dumbledore doing his thing. It didn't feel like there was a narrative, as in, like, because normally for me a prologue is, like... 
Yeah. Somebody kind of tell, explains what has happened. Like, if there was a narration on top of Dumbledore's action saying, like, you know, narrating what he what he was doing beforehand, why he came down and everything then to, sure. to the street, then that would have been a little bit more... That's fair enough. And some of the later Harry Potter films definitely do have prologues. But no, you, you make a you make a But I mean, that's point. just my interpretation yeah. of a prologue. You know, I might be completely wrong, but... No, I, I, I like where you're going with that. It does make a lot of sense. But in any case, there are tracks on both albums called prologues. Hey! Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so we'll start off with The Fellowship of the Ring. And in this case, so The Lord of the Rings is a little bit complicated because there's multiple albums of the soundtrack. So if you've got the normal soundtrack, then the one that's called prologue or whatever is nothing like what actually plays at the beginning of the film. Exactly. That's why I had to point it out to you. I was a bit like, Tristan, this isn't what it's on the film. I'm getting confused. (laughs) But I swear it's the same. It's because on the other more, like, the longer album, the one that comes in like a brown leather-looking cover, there is one, which is what we're about to play now, called The Prologue, One Ring to Rule Them All. This definitely, I felt like I was going, being transported back to the film, mm-hmm. you know, because the, it has so many themes entwined into it. And, like, this is the first time where we hear the ring theme, yeah. you know, as the titles of Lord of the Rings come in. And I, I just remember hearing it. I was just thinking, like, oh, this, this is quite a very unusual, quite sinister, ominous type mm. melody. Um I yeah, mean, sinister and ominous. I would also throw in like there's a melancholy to it as well. Well, it's yeah, definitely, and it has a sort of mysterious quality to it as well. And I mean, apparently, Howard Shaw said that he wanted to give it a sort of a re- like a breathing, rhythmic sort of quality to it, as though the ring is alive. Yeah. And um, it's one thing that always, whenever I hear that theme, the trait that comes to mind is treacherous, mm-hmm. a sort of tempting, sort of. 
seductive. Yeah, kind of maneuvering you, manipulate manipulation. You know, <laughs> it, I I kind of have very negative connotations to it, but not in a but in an admiring way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, because sometimes you can you don't like something, and you want to steer clear of it. But this, it's like, even though it's in some ways slightly unpleasant, but it kind of draws you in. So, um, I mean, that's for me, like, I every time I hear that ring theme, I actually, I just, it kind of um, summarizes the whole... Film. The, the, the film, exactly. One thing that I kind of notice, I like... I don't know whether it's in this track or whether other tracks, but you do get a sense of different species, I guess, um, being played out, you know, and he's kind of captured different cultures of these, that you've got the elves, you've got the humans, you've got the dwarves, you've got, um, obviously, then you've got the orcs and everybody. So I think to be able to kind of give each species or, like, culture, race, race, yeah, yeah. a theme and kind of give them an identity was pretty quite cool but we're still within the same instrumentation and orchestration does that it does just just to sort of further your point and to add evidence so these are the themes that are obvious within this one track and this isn't even including the ones that are hinted at but you've got, so it starts with Lothlorien, which is, goes underneath Galadriel because she's from Lothlorien. Then we go to the theme for Mordor. Then, as you were saying earlier, the theme for Sauron slash the evil of the ring. Then the fall of men. Then the, the ring wraiths and even little hints of the fellowship theme. Mm. All just contained in this one little block. Of the themes in the film, and so and we're going to wind up talking about this, this massive project, but of the theme themes, that contains probably the most exotic ones as well, like particularly Lost Lauren, which has a real sort of Eastern influence to it, and then the the ring, which you talked about with that seductive, treacherous quality, which is very sort of chromatic and mm. um, sort of non, non-diatonic, as we would say. It's a lot of the really quirky ones. So when it they mix it, he mixes it all together, it doesn't sound necessarily all that... Um, sort of disjointed, which is what you'd expect from hammering so many different themes together. It just sounds really strange. And, and simple. I mean, if you look yeah. at the notes for each scene, they're very simple, mm-hmm. like just sort of like one to two bars, you know, and then they kind of developed and repeated and extended, etc. But when you hear those like few notes, you recognise it instantly. Yeah, so the motifs just perfectly set up. The question would be, would many people recognise that... So, if they're not so musically inclined, I think what is very good about, and we'll start talking about motifs now, because what is very good about both this track and the film in general, um, in its use of motifs, is they are incredibly distinct, and he does use very different instrumentation for them all as well. Include he uses a very broad, broad range of instruments. So each theme not only is quite unique and specific and recognisable, but it also sounds very different. So I think even if you're not necessarily hugely musical, you probably feel the different sounds of them. Like that ring theme that you're describing, he uses for that a an instrument, I think it's called the writer or something. It's basically, it's a, it's a Moroccan instrument, which is, I would describe as being literally halfway between a clarinet and an oboe. So clarinet shape, but it has an oboe double reed, and it has that sort of really piercing, slightly nasal sound. And he mixes that in with the brass on that, which is what gives it that really kind of humming sort of a noise to it. And that's part of what makes it sound so 
exotic and slightly off, which makes it stick out more when you do hear it because it's it's unique, mm-hmm. as it were. So I, I think he's very good at making them really stand out so that you feel them even if you don't, like, recognise the notes. I think also that he repeats them so much that you, he kind of does drill them in and I also imagine that Peter Jackson... And Howard Shaw expected that there will be certain people like me who will watch this film too many times. And after a number of viewings, you definitely start to pick out what each individual Mm. theme is. Um, Personally, I think it's quite brave in this very first track to immediately do the the themes as motifs. Mm -hmm. Particularly the fact that the very first motif that you hear is that Lothlorien one to go underneath Galadriel. Like, we will not see Galadriel for, like, two hours of film yet. So we've got no idea how to place that in context. But they go through the process anyway of making sure that this character from Lothlorien has a Lothlorien theme and keeping all of that consistent so that it will work as a system all the way along. Plus, it just sounds so exotic and mysterious and dark and old and it, it, it's it's the perfect tone. I remember, because, so with Lord of the Rings, like, obviously the book is 60, 70 years old. There had been so many attempts over the years to bring out a Lord of the Rings in, like, animated form or film or bits and bits, and they'd always fallen flat. They'd always failed to get the tone right, and I assume that it has largely been because fantasy was always seen as, like, a kid's thing, and so they always tried to make it very kid-friendly, and it's a very dark story, and it didn't work. So I just remember I hadn't seen much about The Lord of the Rings going in, but I loved the book, so I was keen to see what they'd done. And I just remember sitting there and hearing that, and just from that one track, that one prologue, was like, oh, I think they're going to do this right. Because you immediately felt, oh, this is, this is adult, this is complex, this is dark, this feels tonally right for the film. And indeed it carried on as it started, and it just, it just works. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Should we move on to Harry Potter then? Sorry. <laughs> I get excited. <laughs> See? Told you. <laughs> so for this one, nice and simple, the track we are listening to is called Prologue. should note that that isn't actually in the film, but variations of that theme 
or of that track, really, are basically used for the beginning of every Harry Potter movie. So I think it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah, totally. What did you think of it? I think that this is one of... I mean, last last month when we were talking about Game of Thrones, we were talking about, you know, this is one of the great memorable themes of the last, you know, 20-odd years of, of um, film and TV music. This is probably the other one. Like, just as an instantly recognisable theme, as, as even purely as a piece of sonic branding, that Hedwig theme is brilliant. There's just something about it that even though you can sort of say, oh, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like that, oh, it sounds like, you know, John Williams is, you know, Home Alone or whatever, it doesn't matter. There is something about it. The moment you hear those first few notes, a bum, 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 you just, okay, Harry Potter, boom. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it has to be Harry. I mean, I swear I can't see the cover of a Harry Potter book without hearing that theme in my head these days. Like, it's just... I don't know what he did, what what witchcraft was involved, but he somehow managed to distill everything about that character into this one thing, which he then named after another character, so God knows what. But it's just it's perfect, and it's it's also as well as being a perfect distil- distillation of Harry Potter. I think it's also a great distillation of that particular corner of John Williams's writing. I think it combines his best work in his sort of his Star Wars themes, Home Alone, Hook, that sort of childlike writing that he does and has done quite well. I think this is the best and most perfect example of that. What do you th- what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very strong motif. I definitely think that it kind of captures all the sort of traits that you expect it to be for a fantasy film, you know, which is magical. It's very colourful. It's rich and it's dense with motifs, as you say, with Hedwig's theme and stuff. And it is very ballet-like as well. Um, it reminds me of the, a little bit of the Nutcracker. Yeah. And then there's a bit of sort of what, what Wagner element to it. Yeah. And it has a mischief quality to it. And I guess with the Celeste, like, that's the instrument used for Hedwig. You know, John Williams felt that it's very it's very suitable for the sort of, you know, because it's quite bird-like, you know, with its fluttering when you play the certain, when you play the Celeste a certain way, you know, when you mix all the several notes at the same time with the pedal, you know, it kind of, it does give that sort of floating, flying feeling, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, everybody loves, would love to be able to fly, you mm-hmm. know, and there is a little flying, I guess, in Harry Potter with being witches and wizards yes. and all that. Yeah, it, it is very childlike. I think, yeah, it works as a theme and it is very memorable. I think for me, it's just the rest of it, the rest of the track as we go along is a little bit, yeah. Really? Mm. Okay. Because, I mean, I agree. I really like that opening. I think, like, the very first notes, and they, they do it almost every time, the, the sort of the, I think, low-range Celeste, and they usually have that over, like, the Warner Brothers logo kind of thing. I always love that because it feels to me like you've discovered, like, an old music box, which is a little bit of a cliche, but it, it kind of works as being, a, like, an entryway into this world, basically, because mm-hmm. it just feels like a little machine that's winding up on its own volition, which is which is cute and it's beautiful. Um, I think, or the, I really like the rest of the track as well because I feel like this track immediately starts to establish his musical language for the film. Like you start to get a feel of the fact that there's going to be so much colour in his orchestration, that there's going to be strong melodies, that the harmonies are going to be interesting and that there's going to be complexity there. There's one little bit that I want to bring your attention to. Um, and it's from about 107 until 124 in the track. And there's just there's these little bubbling. So at this point, the strings have just been doing these runs. But then they start doing this weird little 
bubbling murmurs. It sounds like a cauldron just sort of bubbling underneath it, and it's all, but also like a little fluttering. That is a really complicated texture, and it's the sort of thing that literally no other composer writing these days does. As you say, it's, it's very ballet-like. It's like something that Tchaikovsky or Rimsky-Korsakov would have done, and frankly no one has done ever since. And it's something that only an experienced old-school composer would do or would be allowed to do, because as much as anything else, these days, as we know, these scores are generally mocked up on computers, at least, even if they are going to be recorded, they'll be mocked up on a computer first, and it would sound terrible on a computer because it just, it wouldn't work. It's oh, It only works because of the way that fingering and bowing techniques happen to work on these stringed instruments. It's a real old-school orchestration technique, and you just don't hear that anymore. So, shall we start talking about which one's the winner? I'm going to give it to Lord of the Rings because I do love that ring, that the ring theme. I just, it really sticks to me, and it's... You know, it's it seduces me. It calls to me. Yeah. You know, so, um, and the fact that all these other, what I mentioned in the previous, previously, the fact that you get all this variety of themes all in one, but they're so distinct, and you kind of get a real nice introduction to this world of these like medieval, sort of otherworldly, completely different world to our own. Um, the Harry Potter one does magic for sure, but I didn't. It's it's too reminiscent of his previous work. So I'm finding it incredibly difficult to decide a winner for this one. But... So I'm going to fall back on my old little trutch argument, which is I think that the Lord of the Rings is achieving a more difficult task because as well as being tonally perfect, it also introduces all of these themes mm. in a way that is correct for the rest of the film at a time where they could have probably gotten away with not, but they do anyway because they're committed to it as a, as a process. So I am also going to vote for Lord of the Rings, making it two votes for Lord of the Rings. So let's move on to round two. The Ordinary World. As both of these films track the journey of characters from an innocent, childlike world and then into an adult world of complications and darkness. And because they're both, in both cases today, we're talking about the first films in the franchises, the critical themes of both of these movies is that sense of innocence. Mm. So for Fellowship of the Ring, we're going to be talking about the track Concerning Hobbits.
So that's folky music. It represents the Shire, the Hobbits, yeah. all that's good and innocent in the world. Rustic countryside feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're hearing here, this is, I'm leading my book as we speak, is it starts with what's known as the pensive theme. It's on a sort of a flute. And that's the version of the theme that you'll hear kind of throughout the film's series whenever, oh, like... Oh, God, you know what? It reminds me of the Titanic. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, sorry, it's hard to say. This is the first thing that came to my mind well, when I heard it. Well, it's the same it. Celtic flute sound, I guess. Yeah. And you think the theme is also similar? It, it's just some of the word, the phrasing is slightly similar. Okay. Here's, a, here's the Titanic theme. You can let me know what you think. But I can, but I can see what you're saying. But yeah, it's just, but it's the same thing because it's that same folky Celtic theme. Um, but in any case, this setting of it, as we will, as we'll say, is you'll hear throughout the entire series. It tends to be when the the hobbits are thinking of home. It's their sort of like sad, well, not sad, but sort of slightly melancholy, contemplative, nostalgic theme. Mm-hmm. But then soon after, we get that sort of folky fiddle one that's a lot more jaunty. Mm. Yeah. Um, that one you almost only hear in this film. Because mm-hmm. that is very that is the sort of authentic Hobbit sound of, of them actually living. It's the rural theme of them actually just living there and enjoying their you know bumbling silly little lives. And so part of kind of the magic of this film and the film score is the way that they kind of like separate the themes apart from each other. So we get further and further away from this little dancey jig type theme mm-hmm. and more into the the melancholy nostalgia, which I, I find to be quite effective. Um, and all you wind up with left of that um, fiddle theme, and you do hear it um, in here, in, in um, Concerning Hobbits from about one twenty on, are what um, Howard Shaw calls skip beats, which are just like, they're just little like rhythmic underpinnings, which sort of boom, 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 mm-hmm. which tend to be used later on for like, you know, goofy little Hobbit moments. Or playfulness. Because yeah. the Hobbits do have a sort of playful element to them. Yeah. You know? So particularly Merry and Pippin, it'll continue to do their, like, silly moments around the end and, and, and bits But and bits. it does, like, the scene, obviously, of the film, in the film, the music kind of highlights those moments of, like, of each kind of t- type of a Hobbit. You know, you have ones who are the more older generation, mm-hmm. who are a little bit more pensive, and then you have the more, like, Frodo's... Sort of yeah, the is, yeah, and then you have, as you say, Mary and Pippin, who are the more mischievous ones. You know, like tiny little children, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it kind of it highlights all those characteristics very well. Yeah. Of, um, of the Shire, and I do like its use of you know whenever you hear them of them kind of remembering and their longing and you know, whenever you hear that theme. It's basically it's meant to signify them, obviously longing or remembering home, home, um, and it's just it's quite. You kind of you feel you go more on a journey with them. Yeah. You kind of understand them, and you you kind of when you hear that as well, you kind of sometimes get transported back yeah. as well. So, do you know what I mean? I completely it, agree. I think that is the 
that is a huge achievement and that is so crucial for these as films is that sense of nostalgia. So much of The Lord of the Rings is about essentially homesickness, mm. about missing home and also this like duty to protect home. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so much of, like, as I understand, a lot of this book was written while uh, J.R. Tolkien was in World War One, and also while his son was in World War Two. Um, so there is a, like a huge sense of genuine longing for like rural England and wanting to keep it safe, but also wanting to go back there. And that theme, if you don't have that, this as a film doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And we only get, okay, it's a, it's a long film, so you get maybe about an hour in the Shire, but you'd only get a relatively short amount of time there over the this, this scope of the entire films. And they have to very quickly establish not only who the Hobbits are, because they're slightly odd, sorts of people but also why they don't ever want to leave it why they never want to leave and why they love this place so Mm. much and Mm -hmm. generate that real sense so that the audience feels it empathizes with them yeah you don't just acknowledge oh they love this place they want to go home because you know it's a home that's simple it's no no we are invested in them wanting to go home and it really has to sell that and i think it does it incredibly well Mm -hmm. definitely yeah no i totally agree so shall we move on to our track for Harry Potter, Diagon Alley and the Gringotts Vault. As a track on its own, I enjoyed it. I do, I do like it. Yeah. Um, it's one of the stronger tracks for me. I think, mm-hmm. obviously, the Hegwitz thing and this, I do enjoy because um, it's very kooky. Yeah, and it's one of the only like sort of almost period music things. You got those recorders. Yes. Yeah. But again, it just reminds me moments of Hook. Like it has a sort of piratey sort of <laughs> okay. quality to okay. it. Um, and there's a lot of interesting melodies that you can latch on. You know, I like how there's a sort of a storyline to the way the music develops and how it differentiates the different locations and the mm. mood, you know, one from one going from one shop to another. Mm. And then but the music is very over the top. Yes. Um compared to the rest of the I mean the the whole film is, and the music is actually over the top, so but this one quite really. So both of these actually are pieces of music over scenes that I was most intrigued about going mm. into the movies. Like For sure, because you're being entered into a whole new world that you read about that you kind of tried to imagine and now it's you see it in, real, yeah. in reality. And the Shire and Diagon Alley I think were probably the two locations I was most intrigued to see yeah. if they would get right. Because I feel like even though in neither case are they, I mean, we've just talked about how important the Shire is, so it's pretty hypocritical for me to now deny it. But in neither point, uh, in neither case are they that crucial to the plot. But they're so crucial to me for the tone. Like, if, I feel like if you get them right, the rest of the film is going to seem right. 
I agree. It, in some ways, like the way it starts off quite high and light and kind of boisterous, and you feel the hustle and bustle of the alley, yeah. and then you gradually make your way down to the basement, and the music gets more serious and gets a little bit more dark and sparse, and then the big reveal of the vault, and mm-hmm. it has a sort of otherworldly and sort of quality to it. It gets used again when they enter the halls in Hogwarts. Ah. Exactly the same. And I felt a bit like, oh, here we go again. So yeah. I kind of felt like it kind yeah. of removed and detached and kind of ruined that diag- diagon- diagon- uh, alley moment. Yeah. The fact okay. that it was reused again for when they were entering into the halls. That's a good point, actually. And so for me, I just felt like, well, it would have been maybe nice if they were going to do that, maybe to have a different variation of mm. that track, maybe slightly more stripped back or maybe a little bit darker or warmer or just something a little bit more ambiguous. Um, because, yeah, so, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, like, if I was going to pick the winner. This music purely kind of illustrates the wonders of the magical world, of be- what it's like to be a witch and a wizard. Yeah. Um, but not innocence okay. for me. I found there was more innocence... In the Shire. In the Shire one. And I like more how it gets reused. You don't, it doesn't, like, with the way it was reused, again, in Harry Potter, it, it kind of lost its appeal for me a little bit. It just, but I still like it, don't get me wrong. And it works for that scene, but... Um, not later on. Not later on, and... So that would be a vote for Lord of the Rings then? Yeah. I will as well. That, Hob- that Hobbit theme is brilliant. This is perfect. It sounds so right for the Shire. I just think also the when it's used in one of those in the film moments where they're the most dire situations mm. and when lo- hope is lost and you get that moments of them that theme being played and like I think it gets played when Sam almost drowns. Mm-hmm. And I think again it kind of, it really kind of u- utilizes the emotional aspect a lot. You know, it and really pulls at the strings. It sets yeah. itself in your brain early, and then is able to be, yeah, it work. It, it's genius. You kind of and you feel for them. You you do empathize with them a little bit more, feeling oh you poor things. Like why did you leave yeah, the show? And by again, we're not talking about later films, but like when you start to see them in Mordor, and it's like, there is a sense of why are you here? Yeah, like, you're you totally should, out of your element here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should not be here. Speaking of which, we should not be in this box. Let's move on to round three. Action. So we'll get right on with it, and this is a this is a cracking track from Lord of the Rings. The Bridge of Khazar Doom.
So that's the first kind of, it's not the first action set piece, that's probably the weather top, but it's the first big action sequence of the entire film series and the first, like, huge one in the in the soundtrack as well. And I think it contains everything that sort of is, is about the Lord of the Rings action writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's totally epic. I mean, epic, we're going to be using the word epic is so overused. I can't think of another word to describe it being epic. Well, I've been and told just... that we use the word bombastic a lot, so we can always oh, do it. it. Apparently so. Bombastic. <laughs> I know, I never thought I've we never... said it much, Not but sure. people have been writing in and saying that we that bombastic is practically our catchphrase. No way. Yeah, way. Oh, <laughs> oh Okay. You learn something new every day. Okay, I won't be using bombastic anymore then. <laughs> so uh, epic is out, bombastic is out. Okay, I think we've been saying it too much now. <laughs> I can see where they're going. Um, I'm actually going to try and look up epic. A little. <laughs> Ella is typing epic into a thesaurus. <laughs> Colossal. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's a colossal track, is that what we're saying? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Um, considering the fact that there is a massive demon that they're gonna, that they're running the away Balrog, from. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did find it quite interesting how, like the you know, as, uh, I, you know, the heroic theme of the fellowship, fellowship. is at the right at the beginning as they're running through it, running through the running down the steps. I think, yeah. yeah. And, and that then, is one of the that is like a nice, clear articulation of the fellowship theme. Yeah. By the way, like that is just. Bam. Yeah, and like I didn't realize that there was. I mean, obviously, I heard there was a male choir singing, but I didn't realize that the what they were actually singing, which I think it was in Elfish or whatever. The, the uh, is it Elfish or Black Speech? I think it might be almost. I mean, whatever. I mean, I'm not going to try and say it. I'll say the translation. But yep. the translation basically goes: the demon comes, no, no. The earth shakes, no, no. Fear rips our heart. No, no. Fire in a great shadow. Fire in the deep. Flames lick our skin. Our skin. Fear rips our heart. Our heart. The demon comes. And that's basically what the male choir is singing. Yeah. Underneath all that wonderful orchestral, lustrous mm -hmm. And music. not just a male choir, because they augmented their male choir with a bunch of Maori rugby players who are um, listed in the score as grunters to oh, give you that oomph, oomph, ah. oomph, oomph. Kind of, kind of a sound underneath it. Yeah, so oh, brilliant. Yeah, so you've got trained singers and then these untrained singers, although having grown up in the Antipodes and having played rugby with a few Maoris over the years, mm. most Polynesians have pretty good singing voices. So I'm going to say that they weren't entirely untrained. Yeah. I do think it's kind of great because you do get a sense. It's actually quite a scary track in some it sense, is. I think. You know, and... For action, you don't get always a sense of fear. It's always just kind of highlighting the action of the movements of what's going on and intensifying, mm. amplifying what's going on. So I think it definitely adds attention to it. And So much attention. Mm. You know what I really love about this track just from a musical technique standpoint is that we've, we've now talked about a lot of action themes on this show, right? And almost all of them have that big, like, driving drum beat or something underneath them. Like, they're really high energy. This is actually, when you think about it, it's quite slow. There's not yeah, a lot definitely. of beat there. But he, because but he uses other techniques to create the tension instead, and which I guess allows for all of the sound effects, like the whistling arrows and the bits and pieces to, to have their place as well. 
But he uses things like the, the grunters and just like a steady beat. It's not fast, but it's steady, the oomph, oomph, oomph. And then the, he's got the syncopation, the slow syncopation that sort of comes in. And then you've got the the various themes that will just sort of come in and, and go and stuff. But like to have an action theme that has words, like relatively slowly sung words, is like that is so rare, especially now. And But it still works. I do find that a lot of the music the action music for this film that Howard Shaw wrote is actually quite subdued anyway. Yeah. It's compared to most action films where, as you say, it's quite driven and it's quite, mm. not, not Mickey Mousing, but it really kind of hits those points. It hits of, the points and it tries to match the energy of the yeah. films. Like, there's a lot of people running. We need to have yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing going on. But, you Whereas know, it's like it's boom, kinda, boom, 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 boom. Whether that's his way of, again, just kind of maybe just retain that his way of composing is to retain the location yeah. of um, where you are because where are they where is it the cave the mines of Moria the mines of Moria yeah, the I'm mines, really cool that's yeah. why I know things like that <laughs> <laughs> well the mines of Moria giving it a voice yeah. that you're in my domain yeah. you know so you have to try and get out so it kind of gives it a sort of a nice quality Ep- well, epic, I, epic I would say epic but colossal, colossal is the word we're going colossal, with yes or and monstrous. Monstrous, ooh, I like that one. <laughs> I love the both the fellowship theme at the beginning and that bit at that uh, three minutes forty in when yeah. it just comes like when the when the theme comes, it just comes roaring through the, the, the track. Yeah, when the bridge breaks and we think the demon's defeated with Yeah, yeah. it feels so triumphant and then I know. and I then know. you have the, the whole yeah. um, you shall not pass moment. Yeah. And then the, it's also interesting that there the the soundtrack actually gets to do something that the film doesn't because the film just kind of like you see Gandalf fall and then you you move rapidly onto the next theme. I, are the you scene. talking about the end of the the track? Yeah. I, yeah, I know exactly what you're going to be saying. I love that as well. How it then it kind of goes into a sort of a mourning. Yeah, sort of the set. track lingers on yeah. the emotion, but even though the film immediately moves on, like yep. it immediately cuts to them running outside. Yeah, and like they've had to move on because they had to run away, but the track continues to kind of like. No, no, this has happened and this is sad. And you've got the uh, the Kiwi soprano Mabel Falatolu mm-hmm. um, singing over the top of the uh, of a theme which is known as Gandalf's farewell theme, which yeah. you hear later on as well. Because Gandalf says farewell a lot in this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's beautiful. Really. And it, it definitely tugs your heartstrings and, and how it's played where it's just the music. You don't hear anybody mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And it's a very overused sort of... Um, scenes where everything gets muted, yeah, and you just watch yeah. people's reactions but this to one a very mournful. It, well, I think it was probably the first time I think I saw it, or maybe the first time that I remember seeing it, and it worked. And it was now it's overused in a lot of films, mm. basically. Um, but <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Game of Thrones. But I, yeah, I re- I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. How it just kind of lingered on, and it gave you that opportunity that more that the opportunity for the audience to kind of feel that emotion because I don't think it would have worked as a listening experience whereby, you know, you're so invested and you're so pulled into this action and this terror and this... Mm. Just when you think you're about to, like, it's all going to go all well and everyone's going to get out alive and then Gandalf presumably dies and then you're given that moment of shock to absorb the shock, you know, with the means as opposed to having to then skip to the next track. So I, I like that. Brilliant filmmaking, brilliant music. So, let's move on to Harry Potter then. Yes, and I said the Diagon Alley was one of the scenes that I think every book reader was like, how are they going to do this? How cool is this going to be? Uh, this is the other one that everyone who read the book and was like, oh my God, they're going to make a movie. 
what are they going to do for the Quidditch match? Mm-hmm. And here it is. What did you think? I mean, we've, we've, we've got to talk about right off the top. This is the latest in a series. It's not a big series, but it is the latest in the sort of, like, ancient sport in movies uh, sort of series. So the, the granddaddy of them all is the um, chariot scene in Ben-Hur, which I'm hoping you're familiar with. I know if I've Ben-Hur. I haven't seen the film, though. You've not seen the original Ben-Hur? Oh, my goodness. We are doing Ben-Hur, and we are doing it soon. Is is there is it with Kirk Douglas? Charlton Heston. 
no, Spartacus I'm thinking, is Kirk Douglas. Uh, right, right, right. Charlton Heston. No, no. We're no. doing we're <laughs> we're doing Ben Hur and Miklos Rose's score for Ben Hur because the Chariot Race is one of those pieces of music you've just got to know. In fact, I'm going to throw down a little bit of that right now. But anyway, so that is the granddaddy of ancient sport fanfares in film. And the other big one in the, and you should all go out and check it out as well, is the pod race from The Phantom Menace, also by John Williams. I mean, it's just, it's its own little mini trope, this, of the, you know, the teams are coming out and the trumpets are playing and it's all big and it's grand. And it's just like, let's just sit down and enjoy this mm-hmm. crazy action sequence that we're about to have. And I, I like this, as, it, it's a trope, but I like it because it just, it builds that anticipation particularly for something, like in all three, actually no, with The Phantom Menace you had no idea it was going to be a pod race, it was just a thing that they threw in. But particularly in Ben-Hur and this, like you knew this was going to be there and it just allows you to just, I don't know, enjoy the moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I take it you like it? Yes, I do. I like it. I think I think it is one of those like really cool moments. I love at 55 seconds you get the, the Gryffindor theme, really big and loud. At two minutes in, there's a flying theme. There's, um, I think it's Hedwig's theme that comes in. I, no, it's similar to Hedwig's theme, but it's it's actually, it's a flying theme, which is, I think his part is like the B theme for Hedwig's theme, but he's used for flying scenes throughout the oh, film. Okay. But not that sort of thing. And then there's a really cool bit, um, like right near the end, about four minutes, 55 minutes in, where it gets all kind of really drunk and woozy, which is when Snape has jinxed um, Harry's broom. So you get like the sliding trombone and stuff and it sounds, mm-hmm. it sounds really kind of funky and jazzy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, the whole track is very colourful and it's excessive use of the streaking violin mm-hmm. string that glides, whatever you want to call the it. The sandals, it's, yeah, and, and it r- runs. Yeah. Very, remi- very sort of Star Wars. It's, it's John Williams' action music and it's John Williams' fanfares as well, which are two things he does very well. He's got a very particular he does action it, music Yes, he sound. does it very well, but he does it too much to the point where, like, I think this is where sometimes it can get lost, whereby, yes, you can identify it's a John Williams track, but then at what point... Which film? Huh? But you can't tell which film it's from, maybe. Yeah, but also there's that, and there's also like, how can you differentiate his ability to try something different? Mm, okay. The fact it feels like he's just rehashing, or maybe the directors or the studios have said, "We love what you did with Star Wars. Can you just do the same for this film?" And it's it's almost like a lazy thing, rather than say like. No, I actually want to go a different route. I want to try a completely different style, mm. different experiments. It's like he just—it's it probably rubbed his ego to be like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do what I do best. I'll do my fanfare epicness, you know, yeah. colossalness, colossalness. And I imagine you're a director or a producer. You've hired John Williams to do your film, and you've got an action film. I feel like you're paying, you're for, paying jo- for that sound. Well, yes, you're paying for John Williams' sound, which I think can be a bit of a downside for him because he doesn't allow him to be overly experimental. That's just my kind of thing. Thing. That's we should all. also. This is the guy who's done it for real. He also wrote the theme for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics as well, which is similar kind of a vibe. Mm. Like the guy knows how to write a fanfare. I don't think. There yeah, are many he's got a formula fans. for it for sure. He knows how to write a certain way that kind of it's very uh, that colossal. <laughs> There's very um, out there and over the top and very um, densely 
with a lot of instrumentation. So much texture, yeah. Uh, and, um, and that's great. But then is he able to strip it back? Has he ever tried doing that maybe? Or... Okay. It, that's just that's a, but that's something that I've always mentioned. I have mm. my my sort of my issue with John Williams. That okay. it's just a, too much of his sound. That I think okay. I don't feel enough of his experimentation. Yeah, you know, I agree mostly with what you're saying. I mean, we I think we definitely agree with that he's probably expected to write in a certain sound because that's that's what you pay for. And Hitchcock has lined us. You know, after a certain point, when you repeat yourself, it's style. It's not. It's not stealing. It's not repetition. It's just style, and then that's what he does. I think he is more playful than people give him credit for, and I think he's playful in the way that. So when you compare these two films, so Howard Shaw is very strict on his motives. Like whenever you hear the Fellowship theme, it sounds basically the same. It's pretty much always in the same key. It's used in the same instruments. There are like lesser and stronger settings, say with the Hobbit theme, but basically they always sound the same. Williams is actually very playful in like, and you you hear it in all of his action music. This one has it. Star Wars has it everywhere. He runs through, and you say, so yeah, you hear the the ear candy and the strings, the runs, the bits and pieces, the brass, like all all of that stuff. But then he develops themes through these action sequences. Like he follows the action, and when you see this character do that thing, their theme will come in, and then someone else will come in, and that will happen. And then the two will react, and they'll change keys, they'll modulate, they'll bend, they'll twist, they'll transform. He actually does like crazy classical romantic era theme theme and variation through these action sequences. And I think in all of the criticisms you get of John Williams, and I'm not necessarily biggest stand John Williams, but I do really appreciate what he does because I think he's probably the most skilled composer out there on a pure musical technicality point. His ability to take his themes and twist and transform them at rapid speed through a track is second to none. He's like, he is musically like one of those, you know, really skilled rappers who can like just keep twisting a rhyme around in ways that you think is impossible, but manages to just keep it going. He can do that with a theme through an incredibly complex action sequence and whilst keeping that sound going. So the director's happy that he's got the John Williams sound, but John Williams will have given you the same theme a hundred times in two minutes. And that will have sounded different every time. There will have been slightly different voice pitch But that's timing. my issue. That I think sometimes when he overcomplicates things, it gets lost mm. for me. I like it. I appreciate what you're doing, John. So, winners. Uh, for me, it will be Lord of the Rings. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all, why were you defending John Williams so much? Though, because it's so good long? writing. Well, he's clearly not for the Quidditch match, then. It is It is great writing. I just, that, I mean, that, that Khazar Doom, it, the twists and the turns, I mean, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. If you like what you hear and you like to keep track of our monthly podcast so you don't ever miss one, then please subscribe to our Soundtrack Showdown channel. You can find it on all the podcast channels on iTunes, Stitcher, and other ones as well. And feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on www.tristellarmusic.com as well as all the other social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Right now, moving on to round four, Evil. Yes. Always Ella's favourite track when we get to talk about Evil. Of course. I love delving into my darker side as well. (laughs) 
But anyway, so we're going to be talking about the shadow of the past from Fellowship of the Ring. Mm -hmm. So here it is. So again, this track doesn't exist quite in this form in the film, but it does have, it's basically a bit of a medley of all of the evil themes of Fellowship of the Ring. And it most closely resembles, although it's not that close, but it most closely resembles that scene where the um, Nazgul come for Frodo at the Prancing Pony in, in Bree. So, so, what, so what do you think of it as a, as a theme, or as a collection of themes? Um, well, I'm not wrong to think that the Sauron and the Ring are, they, but they're they kind of intertwined here slightly. So it opens with Smeagol's theme, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's kind of his theme twisted by the Ring. So there's already a good touch it's of the Gollum's Ring. It's theme. And then you get the Evil of the Ring theme, which is very much a yeah melding of Sauron and the Ring. And then, obviously, at 137 in huge choir, the Ringwraith theme, mm. which itself is built from the first five notes of the History of the Ring soundtrack, which is that... Take that, jam them on top of each other, sing them in a choir, and that's the Ringwraith theme. Yeah. 
like, I mean, it's pretty tense and creepy. That's you know. underwhelming. <laughs> How underwhelming? No, it was a, an underwhelming endorsement from you. Oh, well, well, it is really hot in this box, though. So yeah, that's true. Fair enough. My energy levels are slightly diminishing. But, um, no, and, like, the Sarah and the, the Ring theme, because... I, they're quite similar in their sort of motifs. So, and obviously, there's the reason why they're so similar is because they are part of each other. You know, so the ring was created part of Sauron. So, the, why not? Yep. Um, in terms of like the tension, like I have a fear more from the ring motif than any other one because Saruman he has a theme as well, and it's that sort of like industrial beating. You know, yes. whenever he's um, doing that in Isengard, wherever he's trying mm-hmm. to build his army. It's weird. I found that the evilness... Actually, no, I'm going to backtrack here. Because when they do use the choirs, like when the nine, when the nine kings, whatever yeah. they're called... The ring race. The ring, Nazgul. Um, they're quite creep. They're quite, like, sinister and quite yeah. scary. So, like, I think the use of the choirs when they comes in, it always is going to evoke a sense of... Um, like the devil's coming for you. Yeah, and they come banging through the the gates of the, the town, and the, mm. the choir is blaring. Yeah, that's a that's a moment. That's a real sort of film moment, I think. Yeah, definitely. So, and it's funny because again, you normally kind of associate choirs with like holiness and the church, and mm-hmm. not so much as with evil. Yeah. So, but it gives that sort of otherworldly of you can't defeat them through sort of normal human means and mm-hmm. stuff. There's something apocalyptic about them, yeah, I Yeah, absolutely. So it, I think it does this job for representing evil. Yeah, because, I mean, this isn't a horror film, and it's not, they're not presented in a horror way. It's just to present the, the idea of evil. And I think, yeah, in all cases they are very effective in their own way. You've got that bitter, twisted, nasty, malicious, malevolent ring theme. And then the outright operatic aggression of the ring race. I do find that I still find the ring thing much more scarier than the streaking. If I had to compare, I don't know. There's something about okay. the ring's theme. Just it kind of really gets under your skin. Yeah. Um, because it reminds me of under the skin a little bit too. <laughs> actually, that seductive, slinky scariness. It's fine. That wasn't where I was where I was <laughs> going. But yeah, um, I think because it's very undermined and it literally. What's scary is that evil can infiltrate your mind and cause you to do things. When you see something scary, you can easily maybe run away from it. You ha- there's more of a choice to kind of mm-hmm. distance yourself or escape. Whereas when something's to do with your mind and dealing, trying to work with your c- characteristic and your mm. who you trying to change who you are, that's much more scarier. Yeah, I think personally yeah so this is why I like the ring theme so and whenever it gets intertwined and it the fact that it showcases columns music to kind of show the effects of what the ring can do to you is again quite scary yeah very good we'll move on to Harry Potter and a track called I mean I know we're not supposed to say the name but the face of Voldemort Thank you. 
So I actually kind of dig this one. It's a... I, I would describe it as like a recapitulation of all of the themes of the film. And he's kind of like brought them together in this kind of like creepy musical... And it's just three notes. Yeah. I like it. I, it's... I, this is where I think John Williams should do more, where mm-hmm. he can do more shorter... I don't know. I think this is where I, I do like it because yeah. of the, the simplicity because of... Because his theme is just the three notes. Exactly. The yeah. And because of the whatever they play, they're so ominous, and it's a shame that it doesn't get used in the following themes and it doesn't get developed further, mm. You know, particularly when you get the reveal of Voldemort. Mm. Um, and I think it's a film when he... Rebirths yeah. when, when he rebirths himself, the Goblet of Fire, I think it was. Yeah. Um, but I also like how in, it's interesting how it lingers into the next scene when Harry's in the hospital, you know. Mm-hmm. And I like how for me it kind of preempts that notion that Voldemort was still out there, yeah. And that maybe it's meant to be like an earlier hint to of what's to come and what's to be revealed in the future films, you know. The fact that, am I right to? confirmed that Harry was the twist is that Harry Potter actually had a part of Voldemort's soul in him is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That allowed him to survive? Because there, there were seven he was split so into seven Horcruxes yeah. And, yeah and that Harry Potter had a, a part of him in him but yeah so the fact that it kind of lingered on whilst Harry Potter was recovering I just it's I don't know maybe that was a deliberate thing to kind of signify that like actually you know yeah, the seventh Still book there. hadn't been written by this point, so who knows whether he knew that. I don't know, but yeah, I, but, no, I like but it. Just, it, just, it was just creepy. The fact that it was just those He also green has Voldemort's scar, so like, there yeah. was always a sense that there's something of Voldemort. In They're you. somehow connected and linked together. Um, but I, I don't know, just those three notes are just... And uh, as it gets bigger and more intense and just goes all over haywire, mm. you know, as the action takes over, then yeah, it's... Uh, for me, it gets a little bit... It just it does its job. It gets very over the top. Yeah. Um, but I just always remember, I just really like the ominousness of those three notes for yeah. some reason. Yeah. yeah. It's enough. just very effective for yeah. me. For me, it's it's actually quite an old-fashioned scene. Like as, as a sort of, like these days, your end scene, your big end reveal, whatever, tends to be a lot more... A lot more happens, shall we say. There's a lot more action to it. Whereas this felt more like an 80s or 90s film, which I guess it's closer to in time, where it's just kind of a reveal. It's more like an indie Indiana Jones-type movie ending because not not, not a whole lot happens. You're like, yeah, he burns the guy or whatever, but, like, yeah, it's it's fairly minor. There's not a lot of action there. But it's more creepy. Um, Yeah. And I like that. So to me, the, the score for it, it's all about contrasts of tone color and sound and things like particularly like there's a bit around 50 seconds in where you hear Hedwig's theme in its normal Celeste kind of way but it's got the creepy sliding violins behind it and just adds this sense of off and just uh, not not, not quite right it's it's very uncomfortable Mm. I I really like that actually in terms of a winner though for this one I'm probably actually going to go with Harry Potter. Because I think as just as a track, this one goes better. I think the use of those evil themes in The Lord of the Rings is very good, and I probably could have justified going for Lord of the Rings on that basis. But um, no, I'm going to go with, with Harry Potter for this one, because I think just as a creepy, off-putting use of what are otherwise very child-friendly tracks is actually is very clever and very effective. Mm. 
I'm gonna, funny enough, I am gonna say Harry Potter as well. Purely, it's basically just because of those three notes. I just think it really stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you love the uh, three-note Voldemort theme. Well, <laughs> but also because it was just so simple, and the fact that it was very memorable. But it's there was a creepiness to it. It's mm. not like you know you can you can try and achieve sort of a happy motif. You know, using three notes, but this because it's just the minimal, the minimalism. We're just, I don't know. Yeah. It just it works for me. Well, as we saw with Jaws, he is capable of making thread so, out of very little notes. Yeah, I just wish that he could do more of it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, and moving on to round five, legacy. Like, despite Harry Potter being released in the same year as Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is apparently the one that went with the Oscar. Yeah. For both music and other effects as well. So, um, But it wasn't really until the, th- it wasn't until the third film that Lord of the Rings really cleaned up at Oscars. They seemed to do this weird thing where they all collectively decided to wait. But, yeah, it did win, I think, music and special effects in, in year one. Yeah. And, and I think it deserved to, to be honest, having seen the Quidditch match again. I think I'm going to be talking about the legacy in the sense of what happened to Harry Potter for the rest of the films. Okay. I think because of its lack of consistency mm. um, after film three. And usually for both films, you know, when you do a first installment, when you do the first film, you know, the music is meant to set the rules that um, everybody else who, if you're not able to continue as a composer, has to kind of go by. Mm. And you can do some variations, you know, you can maybe do add your own little additions and add, change a few, sure. do subtle changeovers. But, but the overall sort of tone and style tends to kind of remain faithful to the established Mm-hmm. That's already there. And I think, obviously, because Howard Shaw did all three, he kind of maintained that, and that kind of it kept you going. Get, it helps you be more invested, retain the investment, yeah. you know, be in that world. And ties you know. them all together perfectly. Yeah. Um, so Williams did a great sort of the first installment. Um, I don't think it gets really developed further in the two or three, does it not? So the second film very much uses the same themes. I mean, I guess he had some more for new characters, but I think the Gilderoy Lockhart theme is pretty cool, mm. to be honest. Um, but then the third film, because the third... So first two films were Columbus and Williams, and then the third film was Quaron and Williams, and Quaron got him to change the tone significantly because Quaron changed the tone of the mm. film significantly, which I don't personally have a problem with what he did there, but he did also then change the, the score quite a lot. So it's Prisoner Azkaban we're talking about. Now, I know some people, and if you want to really hear about that, go across to our friends at the uh, Art of the Score podcast who did the Prisoner of Azkaban because they actually reckon it, they reckon it's one of the best scores of the last 20 years. Great podcast. You should all check that out. No, but no, definitely check it, out the Who was the composer? Oh, the composer was John Williams for, as Prisoner Azkaban. Okay. So, so he did Prisoner Azkaban, and but he changed a lot. Um, he added a lot of jazz in for the like weird action sequences. Um, he added new themes. He rewrote old themes. He he changed it quite a lot, but it was still structurally the same, and that we still had light motifs, as it were, for for characters and ideas. Mm-hmm. But then the moment was a John Doyle, John Powell, pa- Patrick Doyle, Patrick Doyle got there eventually. Yeah, the moment Patrick Doyle took over from um, in four and then onto Desplat and stuff for the last ones, they just gave up on that idea entirely and just went with 
kind of generic modern action music. And yeah, it's it's right. It loses a lot of its tone. Mm. And for like those those little tweaks and we'll t- of the idea, like the, just the idea of motifs, and the idea of the you know, there's a motif that attaches to a certain character, and you get these like little links, these little breadcrumbs, these little clues as to what has happened and what might happen. You can sort of talk about them as being perhaps a bit dinky and silly, although they, they work emotionally, I think. We've spoken about how particularly, say, the Hobbit film works emotionally. But they're also a fun exercise to do. And so much of Harry Potter as a book and as a successful book series was about that kind of logic. Like, I remember J.K. Rowling so talking about how, how much kids liked the idea of the fact that Diagon Alley goes diagonally like it like those little kind of word plays and those little tricks and hints and things um were so much a part of the book that to include them kind of as musical easter eggs as it were made sense mm. and to then take that part away felt like it took some of the joy of the the books away as well and so yeah i think it really missed it when they took them out mm. What John Williams does very well, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think he he uses a formula that worked well for previous films, you know, that were very children-based, like Hook, like Home Alone Alone and stuff. I mean, because I guess they were successful, he was able to retain that, that, provide that some form of familiarity or maybe some sort of nostalgia for the audience watching this film who are now young adults or still Mm -hmm. young. But for me, it was just too repetitive at at the end of the day. Yeah, I think when we're talking about legacy, there's definitely a sense where... So these are two fantasy films that came out basically at the same time, but Harry Potter felt like it was the old type of fantasy film that had been being made for the last 20 years because it had that exact sound, whereas Lord of the Rings definitely, I think, established the new sound for fantasy ever since. I think, like... Um, I, I did a, a video on YouTube about this on my other channel as well and things of like games and things that were set in fantasy worlds after and came out after Lord of the Rings felt that they had to copy the sound and ideas that Lord of the Rings had brought to it. Even Game of Thrones, it sounds far more like Lord of the Rings than, mm. than anything that came before Lord of the Rings in terms of, of fantasy. Yeah. There's definitely a, a strong influence, like the sort of heavy use of melancholy and the cellos and the string section. Like he, he really did start to create the blueprint of what modern fantasy should sound like. And just... Set in sort of that sort of medieval... Yeah. And just as a project. I mean, it's one of the great projects. I mean, the mm. sheer fact that you can have a book of, of this size to chronicle all of the themes, I mean, that's spectacular. That's a huge exercise. That is... This, as a piece of work, is as big as the Wagner ring cycle. Like, it's it's epic. Colossal. <laughs> Colossal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can't go past Lord of the Rings... Um, I mean, the fact that John Williams' soundtrack, whilst amazing, and as I say, like, like, still you hear those opening few notes of Hedwig and bam, or see anything about Harry Potter and you hear the opening notes of Hedwig, just the scale of what is achieved with Lord of the Rings is mm. unbelievable. No, no, but I mean, I totally agree. So, like, um, unfortunately, I will... No, it's not unfortunate. No, I do agree. Um, yeah, so my vote would be for the Lord of the Rings... There we go. Lord of the Rings has won four rounds to one by Harry Potter. So that would be our overall winner. So congratulations, Howard Shaw and Lord of the Rings. Yay, congratulations. It's a colossal win. A colossal win. (laughs) (laughs) By a mile. Are you surprised? Did you expect it to go that way? 
I would. I expected maybe for some rounds to be John Williams on his mm. side, but to be honest, I did feel that compared Harry Potter compared to Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings had much more of a consistency, and yeah. it was just. Ultimately, I think that's what largely wins it over. They both have very good music, and I know I found myself defending John Williams a lot because he's good, but I just couldn't vote for him because the Howard Shore. The, it, there's something special about this film, and as we saw with Peter Jackson afterwards, like he never made a film even close to this good again, especially not The Hobbit, and that was with Howard Shore as well. And none of that. They tried the same things more or less, and none of that worked. Mm. There's just something special about this particular film made at that particular time, and uh, yeah the way that they must have all been committed to it, it just works. Well, it was just very fresh as well. So you kind of had to think of new things, new ways, and it's a new... You didn't want to disappoint, yeah. I think. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of things were hanging to get this right mm-hmm. as well because you had the fans of the books, you know, who, yeah. as you said, there were 60 years' worth of fans that you had to try and please yeah. and, and stuff. And failed attempts to bring it out. I think, yeah. there was a re- I think there was definitely a sense with Lord of the Rings of this is an impossible task to do. And but I think like, that, the, like the quest in the film. Exactly. So I think, I think that it helped inspire them. Yeah, mm. I think there was like, we know this is hard and we are taking it seriously and we are going to nail this thing. And they, wow, wow, mm. did, wow did they do that. Um, so, so good. So, speaking of impossible tasks and trying new things, our next episode is going to be a weird one. <laughs> it's going to be one of a kind, probably. Possibly. Well, it's one of a kind for now, but it is an experiment, and we're going to see if it works. It's definitely going to be a first for Tristella, that's yes. for sure. Uh, so basically, as you know, we have been trying to talk about games as much as possible. I think we've only managed to actually do one episode on games. And we are going to try to, you know, go to the gaming audience and we're going to try and do an episode on Twitch. So we're going to do a live broadcast of Street Fighter versus Mortal Kombat. So we're going to be sitting there live. You'll be able to, like, log in live and send us notes. You can, like... Do all sorts of crazy stuff. You can abuse my uh, skills all you want because I am nowhere near as good as Ella at fighting games. There is just no question on that. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this has been true. This no, has been proven you're again setting, and again. You're, setting, you're putting me on a pedestal. You're setting me up to be this like like champion of like beat em ups. But to be honest, like oh, I am claiming underdog status. There is no <laughs> no, no question. It is most definitely mind games. I mean, I have played those games quite a lot when, ever since I could get my hands on those games. But She's yeah. experienced, guys. Experienced. So but anyway, have, but no, but to 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 your credit, I haven't. And um, to your advantage, I haven't had a chance to play the new Mortal Kombat. Because it's Mortal Kombat 11 and then Street Fighter 5. 5. So, yeah. That is deliberate to give myself a chance, guys. Because <laughs> I, I am just, I'm, I'm claiming underdog status. I'm putting, on a, I'm putting the pressure on and I am playing a version that she has not played. And I am practicing, guys. I'm doing everything <laughs> I can to be close. And you will see how far that still leaves me from being competitive. Well, if all fails on my part, I'm just going to do the, 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 the oldest trick in the world is just, just bomb bash. Yeah. <laughs> With Mortal Kombat in particular, I think that works, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so we're going to be doing that on Twitch, and it is going to be live, and it's going to be insane, and we're going to see if that works, because going forward, that is something we might try and do, is actually do a few more episodes where we actually just literally sit down and play a game for half an hour and talk about the music live, more or less, because I think that may even be a better way of doing games, because it's so hard to do the comparable scenes that we've 
as we discovered with Final Fantasy and Zelda. So that is probably going to be around the 22nd of September, we are thinking. Yeah, so make a note in your diary. Make a note in your diary. We will be putting stuff out there on social media very soon. The Twitch channel that you are looking for is Soundtrack Showdown, all one word, the two S's are capitalised. I'm not sure if that matters on Twitch, but Soundtrack Showdown. Check it out. We will have a splash screen up that will be telling you when when it will be. Just keep an eye out, get in there. And if for some reason you're hearing this after the 22nd of September or you can't hear it at the time, we will make sure that it's available up there for you to be able to watch afterwards. Um, it's not going to be on your normal podcasting app because it's not a podcast, but it will be there as a video. And that is exciting and terrifying in equal measure. We are both highly scared about this. If no other reason, then we'll probably be on camera while we're doing it. So it is it is a whole new world for Ella and I to be doing that. The whole point of being composers is that we are <laughs> way behind the camera, not, not in front of it. But that is going to be exciting. But until then, guys, stay classy and uh, keep an eye on our Twitch stream. I never thought I'd be someone saying that. <laughs> See ya. See ya. Bye.